everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ambassadors Forum radio show here on True Talk 800 AM KPDQ. I'm your host, Roy Swart, a bought and paid for bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mission here at the Ambassadors Forum is to equip you to be able to answer life's hard questions the same way Jesus did. I have the privilege today of interviewing one of the elders from our sponsoring church, Southwest Hills Baptist Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Doug and his wife of 45 years, Sherry, are the parents of six children. Doug has a degree in electrical engineering and spent 30 years at high-tech companies, including Intel and Rockwell Collins. He started a second career as an owner of a tutoring service company in 2003, which closed in 2018. And Doug still tutors high school students part-time, teaching Algebra 1 and 2 at our Christian school. Doug and Sherry have been members of Southwest Hills Baptist Church since 1983, where Doug has taught adult Sunday school classes on various books of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament surveys, Christian history from 30 AD to 1800 AD, as well as practical topical series like biblical government, biblical economics, and biblical worldview. He has served multiple terms as an elder at Southwest Hills during the 38 years he's been a member. It is an honor to call you my beloved friend, a fellow soldier in the increasingly intense battle for righteousness in this country, and a cherished mentor and example in my life. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roy. It's good to be here. So, Doug, what do you see as the need at Southwest Hills specifically for apologetics? Well, I think that apologetics is kind of one of the things that every believer needs to be equipped with or be able to do. All of us have to be able to give an answer, as Peter wrote, to give an answer to people for the reason that the hope that we have. And a lot of times in today's culture, that delves into areas that are associated with what we generally consider to be apologetics, being able to answer the questions that non-believers have, especially, but also being able to strengthen the individual believer in his own confidence in his in what he believes. So there's kind of both aspects, both an evangelistic aspect as well as the aspect of just equipping the believer and giving him confidence that what he believes is actually reasonable. Mm. Well, this last year, especially in Portland, has been a challenging year. And there was riots and protests and everything out there, statues torn down, graffiti everywhere, police responses. Do you think the need in Portland is any different than it is in any of the rest of the country, or you think apologetics, especially in Portland, is a big need? Well, I think in Portland we seem to have more of a concentration of some of the ideas that led to what we've seen over the last summer. But we've seen it all over the country, really. And so apologetics is something that we in the church need to do well both for the sake of the members of the church or the people who are in the church, but also for those who are out there protesting. They need to have answers for uh, what their concerns are. Can you give us an example of one of the ways that apologetics, or specifically Christians equipped in apologetics, could help remove obstacles for some of those unbelievers? In our culture today, it's commonly believed, just as a, as a simple example, that Christianity and science are mutually exclusive. Mm. 
right? That Christianity doesn't have answers to the, what's going on in the world in, in a real way. There's this kind of myth that's been perpetuated for a long time that Christians in the Middle Ages hated science and were anti-science mm. and all of these other kinds of things. And so to the extent that people buy into that, then they're not really going to be open to hearing uh, the message of the gospel. Mm. I know that's one of our core tenets is from Second Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 5. We need to remove false arguments. Right. And uh, it's not just enough to preach the truth. If somebody's holding on to a falsehood or a lie, first you have to remove that in order to have fertile soil to preach the truth. Right. Yeah, because a lot of times people have predispositions or presuppositions that they've bought into without really examination. Mm. They've accepted those things because it's things they've always heard, it's things they've been taught in school, and they really haven't actually examined them. They've mm. just kind of accepted them wholesale. And so hopefully the apologetic ministry has the ability to actually cause them to actually have to think about or to, to examine the things that they've actually taken uh, for granted. Mm, that's a great example. Do you have another one for the other side of it, which is strengthening believers' faith themselves? Sure. Well, I think a good example of that has to do with scientific reasons or, or things which give evidence to creation. Mm. All right? And so we have two different narratives in our culture today about origins. Mm. And the Bible has one narrative that it gives us is about origins, and the secular world has a different story. And so I think to the extent that science can be shown that actually supports the creation narrative, it strengthens a believer's confidence in what mm. Scripture actually says. Mm. Mm. That's good. Well, I know you've been a long-term proponent of teaching a strong biblical worldview as an essential part of our Christian education. How do you think our Christian schools are doing? How do you think the church is doing in this area? Are we winning? Uh, define winning. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, on the one hand, I could say, look at what's going on in the culture, and I would say, no, we're not winning, mm. right, if you watch what's going on in our own culture. On the other hand, I've seen a tremendous change over the last 20 years. Uh, 20 years ago, the idea of talking about a Christian worldview was not something that was commonly discussed. Mm. Nowadays, in most evangelical churches, everybody talks about a Christian worldview. I think the extent to which people actually implement that is varying all over the map because people come to these ideas, if you will, gradually, not all at once. And so there's an aspect of beginning to see how Scripture actually can address a lot of areas that our culture says are areas which only the secularist has an answer for. And so I think all of those play into that in the church. And I think the church is late to the party, so to speak. Mm. Or it's, in fact, one of the things that I've often thought of is I've done the studies on things like biblical government or biblical economics or some of those things, is that these are things that were known at one point in time, mm. that were kind of in the air, if you will, in earlier times in our culture when it was really much more Christian-based. Mm. But those things aren't in the air anymore. Different mm. things are in the air. And so we have to recover those things that we've lost. Mm. I know some people would say that's an area for just the church to worry about, spiritual things, 
the Bible, that doesn't belong in the marketplace. It doesn't belong in our culture. How would you respond to that? Well, the first thing I would say is that this is God's world. Mm. Right? He made it. When he made it, he said it was good. The fall, of course, marred that. And so God had an intent for us even before the fall. So God has a concern about this world. In fact, mm. he had so much of a concern about this world that he became flesh and dwelt among us. He didn't remain in the spiritual world. He mm. became a human being. And so that shows his interest, if you will, in the fact that we are not merely spiritual entities, but we are, in fact, flesh and blood. We are material entities as well. Mm. well I know that you have used a evaluation tool called Peers to assess a person's worldview. Uh, tell us more about that product and how has it been received? It's a long questionnaire. It examines different areas of worldview, social, economic, governmental, and so on, uh, and religious. And I think it's a good instrument, but it's certainly an imperfect instrument because you're always relying on how people read the questions, mm. right? And so one of the things that I've seen that it does is it gives you the opportunity to talk with people. When you look at how they've answered it, it's actually a nice way to kind of map out where people are on certain issues, and then to ask them and question why they answered the way they did. Mm. And sometimes it's just because they misread the question, they didn't understand the way the question was being worded. Mm. I know you've used it at various levels, you know, starting with students and teachers and leaders, even with elders of the church and other ministries. Do you think, in general, people are surprised at the results of the test because they hadn't thought through all the implications of a biblical worldview? Yeah, certainly there can be a pushback on the test because they didn't think, for example, a lot of the governmental questions were questions that Christianity or the Bible spoke to. We really have very much deeply embedded in the culture the idea that the church and state really ought to be completely isolated. Mm. And one is not to affect the other. And Christians have kind of bought into that idea. Mm. And when you think about what the Bible says about government being God's minister, then, you know, that doesn't really make sense. Mm-hmm. Let me change gears a little bit and ask you about our youth. I know a lot of churches are reporting that they are losing their youth in college. That a young person who's been raised in the church, uh, gone to Sunday school, maybe even a Christian education, someone who, is, who they think is well-prepared for the world, they go off to college, and within the first semester, they hear something from a professor or whatever, and they come home and they've lost their faith. Has that been your observation? And if so, what do you think churches can do to inoculate their kids and their congregations against that? Well, I think you know, when kids go off to college, it really is the first time their faith is tested outside of their home church, outside of their family. And so if they're not well prepared when they go into that, because they haven't addressed these kind of what some people might describe as peripheral areas, then they hear something that says, well, that makes sense. You know, that sounds like that would be a solution to whatever the problem is that you're talking about. And it's not something that they've ever explored in church, and they've never been taught how to read the Scripture in that way, that the Scripture has something to say to those things, and so how would they respond? And I would say this, too. The culture is a lot different. I'm an old guy, right? (laughs) And the culture is a lot different than it was when I went to school. And 
the whole set of kind of foundational assumptions have changed, even from the time that I was in school. So a lot of issues that we face in our country today and a lot of the solutions that are being proposed are being proposed in this, again, in this environment in which there's a separation of church and state, and therefore the church is supposed to deal with the inner man, it's supposed to deal with your private relationship with God, but it's to stay out of the public square. Do you think, one, you mentioned there that it's the first time these kids have their faith tested. Right. What do you think about the idea that maybe in apologetics or some other ministry about testing kids' faith earlier in a safe environment of the church or ministry? I think that can be helpful. I think one of the things that the apologetics ministry wants to be able to do, though, is they want to be able to, they have to be honest about it. Mm. And by that, what I mean is, is they, they cannot approach it by presenting a caricature right. of the other side's view Strawman, and then example. attack that. Mm. They have to be able and equipped to be able to present the best arguments that the other side has mm. and then help kids understand how to navigate through that. Mm. Yeah, it, I'm glad you brought that up because as apologists in the Ambassadors Forum, sometimes we feel like we're undercover cops. And we have to go embed ourselves in the crime organization to learn it well enough to be able to come back and say, okay, this is how it really operates. And so we spend a lot of our time watching atheist podcasts and reading books by Dawkins and Hitchens and learning what it is that the arguments that they're making, and like you said, not putting them up as a straw man and saying, well, those are ridiculous, you just push them over, but really searching for some of the even biblical truths that may underpin some of these incorrect conclusions. And so that's something that we do a lot. Yeah, one of the things I remember Francis Schaeffer talking about in his study was that after doing that kind of study, he had to spend a lot of time in the Word and in prayer um, afterwards. <laughs> Just like an undercover cop. You're right? like, i got to get that stuff out of me. <laughs> so, yeah, very much so. The one thing I would say, though, is that in some ways we don't have to be undercover because we're constantly bombarded with it in <laughs> the culture. It's already there. <laughs> it's, it's always out there. And so I think we do have to – sometimes it's just how do we listen to what the culture is saying? Yeah. Are we really understanding what they're saying? And understanding it in the terms that they intend for it to be understood. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's one of the surprises, and maybe it shouldn't have been a surprise, but I think one of the surprises in my own life was that my primary tool as an apologist is not my mouth, it's my ears. Mm -hmm. And learning to listen and to listen well. Yeah. Staying on this topic of apologetics and kind of the popular approach of apologetics, what do you think are some of the deficiencies or or drawbacks of what I might call a popular approach that a lot of churches or ministries are making today? Well, I think one of the things that we always have to remember is that with apologetics and with making an argument, we're not going to convince people into heaven. We're not going to convince people into their salvation. What we can do is try to remove the obstacles of things that they can't reconcile because the gospel is reasonable. God is a God of reason. And so it's not like we throw reason out, but sometimes we can so approach apologetics in the sense that we want to have the better argument. We want to 
be able to demolish the other arguments, and certainly that's what Scripture tells us that we need to be able to do. But we need to understand that there's a spiritual component, mm. right? That reason can only take us so far. And in fact, I remember somebody once saying that you can't reason a person out of something that they were not reasoned into mm, in the first good. place. That's good. And so we want to make sure that we're able to identify where we're dealing with real intellectual objections versus when we're dealing with people who are simply trying to create trouble, if I can say it that way, <laughs> right? Who are, they aren't really open. They're not really searching. Sure. Yeah. One of the things that we've talked about on this show before several times has been the idea that the worst kind of answer you can give to an intellectual question is an emotional answer. Right. But in the same way, the worst kind of answer you can give to an emotional question is an intellectual answer. Right. And so we need to be very good as apologists of discerning this person asking the question right now. Are they asking an intellectual question or are they asking an emotional question? Right. And sometimes it's not even that they're not open-minded or they're trying to be, you know, a real turkey and <laughs> just try and create chaos and disruption. Sometimes it's coming from a part of brokenness and woundedness and they're just asking an emotional question and they just want someone to listen and give a sympathetic answer. Right. Right. And of course, you run into that in apologetics with probably the hardest question, which is, you know, how can there be evil in the world if God is good? And so the problem of evil is oftentimes the most difficult. And it's actually, I think, probably the one that sometimes kids run into in college, that if they're not equipped to answer that question, and because it's a difficult one. It is. When they're not equipped to answer that question or to know how to think about that question, that's when a lot of doubts come about. And what we've seen in that particular question specifically is sometimes people say, how can God allow bad things to happen? When what they're really saying is, why did God allow that specific bad thing to happen to me? Right. And if you answer and say, well, in general, God is sovereign, and in general, these things, and in general, and they say, that's not what the question I was asking. I feel bad, <laughs> and I'm sad, and I feel like God doesn't love me because this happened. And so sometimes we can miss the question entirely. Yeah, and in our culture today, we're going to see more and more people like that because of the damage that the false ideas of the culture today are perpetuating, especially yeah. among the young. And so we're going to end up with even more damaged people who are going to come at us with, with that kind of a question. Yeah, and I think that's a good thing for us to understand is if you bring a car in for service and it's you know a fairly new car and it's just got one thing wrong with it, you're going to troubleshoot and repair that car differently than if it came out of the junkyard and it's all smashed up and nothing works. And right. so I think we need to get very good at saying, this person right in front of me, how wounded are they? Because a lot of people are coming from a very wounded place. And, and that's where, in apologetics, too, um, goes back to what you said earlier, and that is we want to be good listeners. And we want to, actually, to go further, we want to be good questioners. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We want to be able to ask the right questions Yeah. Right. to, to draw that out. Well, what do you think about the idea that some apologetics ministries are taking today and that is they want to do apologetics without the Bible. They say that the Bible is something that once you're a believer, you accept, 
but it's something that an unbeliever is like rejects. And so what do you think about the idea that we may want to do apologetics without the Bible because that might be seen as an obstacle by some unbelievers? I don't think we should shy away from using the Bible. I think the the question that we have to do, though, is we have to show people how does what their question is relate to Scripture? Mm-hmm. How does Scripture address their concerns? And so that goes back to then one of the things that we need to do is be well-versed in Scripture. And this is what I think is really hard for young people because, I mean, you know, the difference between a young person coming out of high school and he's 18 years old, he hasn't lived much of life yet, a lot of life has been decided for him especially if he comes out of a Christian home, he's lived in an environment where a lot of the issues have been kind of already resolved by his parents. Mm. And if you look at, you know, somebody my age, I've had, you know, seven, almost 70 years now. <laughs> uh, I became a believer when I was seven years old, mm. and I came from a Christian home. I've had a lot of time to think, to do mm. research, mm. all that kind of stuff. And an 18-year-old just hasn't had the time yet. Sure. And so that's where I think what's really important for those kids in that situation is that they remain connected to a church. I think mm-hmm. their their first commitment when they go off to college is they've got to find a church to get plugged into so that they have that connection with older and wiser people. Mm. Someone to kind of walk with them while they're going through this very pivotal time in their life. Right. That's good. Well, here's the last question, and it's in the context of our circumstances today, which are pretty intense. How have you seen the church grow stronger and more united through the apologetics opportunities that the pandemic and government lockdown have created? In some ways, I think that the last year has caused um, the church to be really challenged with how it thinks about things out there in the world how it thinks about the role of government and how it thinks about its relationship with governmental authorities. And I think in some ways it's really caused a rethinking of a lot of things. And I don't think the church has an answer for that right now. If if I'm Mm. speaking broadly about the church, and especially in, in America, which is what I'm familiar with. And so I think many times in church history there have been crises. And the church didn't have a necessarily an answer for that crisis at the beginning of it. Mm. But the crisis has forced the church to actually work out its theology mm. over time. And I think that we haven't seen yet what the outcome is going to be. Mm. Um, I don't think we're through it yet. <laughs> okay. Um, and I think there's a lot of questions that people still have about how we relate in that area. Mm. Where do we have a responsibility to be both submissive to the government, as uh, Paul wrote in, from, in Romans, but also thinking really through seriously what are the boundaries mm. that constrain government. Mm. And I think that's where the apologetics comes back into the Bible has something to say about the nature of civil government. Mm. And I don't think that the church has, has really thought through with any robustness, the whole issue of civil government for probably 200 years. We've had it so easy, especially here in America, we've had it so easy relative to that, that we've not had to wrestle with the questions that our forefathers had to wrestle with or those the reformers had to wrestle with or, you know, going all the way back to, you know, The early councils. (laughs) Right. So, you know, I think it's one of those things where it's a work in process and Mm. 
So I, I don't. I think the jury's still out on some of that. Mm, that's a great perspective. You know, the old adage that whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> right. The idea of a church that has nothing to wrestle and struggle against is maybe not that healthy of a church. But you, you need to go through these things. Yeah, and 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 there are there's going to be some robust debate, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, at the other end of it, I, I guess. Uh, uh, the consolation that we have is that we know that Christ has promised he will build his church. Amen. Well, as always, Doug, it has been a pleasure talking to you. I could do this all day long, so thanks for being on the show today. Well, you're very welcome, Roy. It's been good to be here. Now, how about you? Have you struggled to make sense of all of the complex information available to us today? Have you heard the word worldview before but never really understood what it meant? Well, the Ambassadors Forum is here to help. We have lots of excellent resources to help you get started on your journey of being equipped in the field of Christian apologetics. Go to our website at theambassadorsforum.com. Finally, thank you for joining us on the radio today. You can join us every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on True Talk 800 a.m. KPDQ. I pray that God will raise you up in your own faith and send you out to share that faith with others in the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until next time, I'm Roy Swart. May the Lord bless you and keep you.